This is Alan Johnson, pastor of Old Peachtree Presbyterian Church in Duluth, Georgia. The Bible is God's Word. It describes itself as living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Therefore, any encounter with the Bible is a momentous thing because it never leaves us unchanged. My prayer for you as you hear this message is that the Holy Spirit will use it in your life to inform your mind, to feed your soul, and to help you grow in your faith in Christ. And turn with me to Matthew chapter 23. Matthew 23, we're looking this morning at verses 1 through 39. Hear the word of God. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, The scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat, so practice and observe whatever they tell you but not what they do. Well, they preach, but do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. They do all their deeds to be seen by others. They make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long, And they love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by others. But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher and you are all brothers. And call no man your father on earth, for you have one father who is in heaven. Neither be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Christ. The greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces, for you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte, And when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. Woe to you, blind guides, who say, If anyone swears by the temple, it's nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath. You blind fools, for which is greater, the gold or the temple that has made the gold sacred? And you say, if anyone swears by the altar, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift that is on the altar, he is bound by his oath. You blind men, for which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? So whoever swears by the altar swears by it and by everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it. And whoever swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside also may be clean. 
Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying, if we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. Thus you witness against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your fathers, you serpents, you brood of vipers. How are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Therefore I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify, and some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town, so that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth, from the blood of innocent Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who were sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you would not. See, your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Let's pray. Sanctify us, O God, by the truth. Your word is truth. In Christ's name, amen. These words are among the harshest words that our Lord spoke in his earthly ministry, and certainly the lengthiest statement of this nature that our Lord made. It's worth noting that he did not aim these pointed words at tax collectors, prostitutes, at the corrupt, at the blasphemers, at adulterers, at murderers, at thieves. He addressed them to the most religious among Israel, indeed to the religious leaders of Israel, the scribes, and the Pharisees. He was talking to people whom Israel looked up to and held in high esteem as the most godly of men. And as we read these words, we need to recognize that they are more than just a diatribe, more than just a fit of peak on our Lord's part, more than his merely venting his spleen. That this is a, a formal statement of divine judgment for rejection of the Messiah. These words follow immediately the section we spent some time on looking at. These various exchanges Jesus had with different people there in the temple area. And the, the last couple had to do with the Pharisees asking about the greatest commandment. And then Jesus questioned to the Pharisees, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? And they betray their appalling ignorance as to their own 
Messiah. These were the leaders. These were the teachers. These were the experts in the law. Couldn't answer Jesus' question about the Messiah. And they lived in hostility to Jesus. And so Jesus makes this statement to expose them, to confront them, and perhaps by the grace of his Father to afflict them, to convict them, that perhaps they might consider their ways and perhaps in a future time repent. Now, I've entitled this sermon Lessons from Hypocrites, and we do want to look at what Jesus says to these scribes and Pharisees in order that we might benefit from it. However, each one of them is negative, and a negative lesson or a negative example can be a tricky thing. And so following something of the pattern of our own catechism, which as we read earlier, looks at what is prohibited but also brings forth what it requires, uh, we're going to look at this in that way too. We're going to take what Jesus says here and put them in some positive ways because uh, the opposite lesson would be that which applies. If Jesus is condemning them for certain actions, behaviors, attitudes, then we look at the reverse of that as that which would honor Jesus in our lives. And so with that in mind, let's proceed to examine this text uh, in terms of seven keys to avoiding hypocrisy, to avoiding falling together with the scribes and Pharisees under the condemnation, the rebuke of Jesus. Well, the first key, uh, and really occurs first in the passage, and perhaps is the most obvious, and that is we have to walk the talk. Or to put it another way, we do have to practice what we preach. Notice what Jesus says in verse 2. We see this in the first four verses. Well, Jesus says they're still in the temple area. He says to the crowds there, and to particularly to his disciples, but to the crowds at large, the scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. Now, it seems that in the synagogues there was a chair placed prominently in the front, which was where the teacher, formal teacher, would sit to address the crowd that was standing there around in the synagogue. The teacher would be in a seated position. It was a sign of authority. And Jesus acknowledges that they are heirs of that teaching function that Moses had. They sit in his seat, and he says, verse 3, So practice and observe whatever they tell you. You know, as they, they do know the law, as they teach the law, as they teach the Bible, for them, of course, the Old Testament, Jesus has listened to them. You know, he doesn't just write them off entirely because of his complaints with them. They do know the law. They do teach the law. And Jesus says, insofar as they are teaching you what Moses gave you or teaching you the Old Testament, you need to listen to them. When it's the word of God, you obey it, regardless of who it might come from. But, he says... Practice and observe whatever they tell you, but not what they do. Here's his complaint. For they preach, but they do not practice. They teach truth. They teach the Old Testament. They just don't do it. Jesus is saying, listen to them, but do not follow their example. Now, he recognizes the validity uh, that they, of their teaching, it recognizes the respect that people should have for them, but they don't do it. And notice what he says in verse 4, kind of explaining what he means. Well, they tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, lay them on people's shoulders. They themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. 
The one complaint that he has is, is they place all of these heavy burdens, extra teaching, the traditions of men on people's shoulders, and they're not willing to help them with them. What's more, they don't do them themselves. Remember, Jesus said, come to me, my burden is light. The Pharisees' burden was heavy. And not only so, uh, he says that they are not willing to move them with their finger. They themselves are not willing to help. They're not willing to sympathize or empathize with those people, but rather they burden them. And they rebuke them and they condemn them. In other words, there's no joy and there's no grace, there's no help for them at all. This is the first thing that Jesus takes exception uh, here, that their example is bad. And positively, what we do is turn this around and say that we need to be careful that we do what we say. What we say to one another in the church, you who teach Sunday school, you parents who teach your children. We've, we've had quite a few baptisms in the month of May. Uh, you've heard the baptismal vows, and that the, 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 the vow is very significant in that third vow where we ask parents unreservedly to dedicate their children of God. And it requires certain things of them. Three things are specifically mentioned. What is the first one? It says that they promise in humble reliance upon divine grace. What? That you will endeavor to set before him a godly example. First thing that's mentioned. Then that you'll pray with him and for him. And then, only then, that you will teach him the doctrines of our holy religion. You see, teaching comes third. After the example. Because you see, you can teach all you want, parents. But if your example contradicts your teaching, that's what your children will see. That's what your children will hear. Or you who teach, or you who minister, you who are elders and deacons. The example has to be there. And then praying with and praying for and then teaching all the doctrines of our holy religion. But the first thing that is called for there is the example. And that's precisely what was lacking with the Pharisees. So that's the first key to avoiding this kind of hypocrisy. is to be careful to do what we say we're going to do. Second, live for God's approval, not man's. Live for God's approval, not man's. Look at verses 5 through 12. Jesus says of them, they do all their deeds to be seen by others. What they do is simply to earn the applause of men. We've encountered this before in Sermon on the Mount. Jesus talks about this kind of thing. Look at what he says, verse 5. They make their phylacteries broad, a reference there to Deuteronomy. Uh, where, where it says to bind God's law on your forehead. Well, li- they took that literally. It would make boxes with copies of the law in it and put it literally. Well, whether God intended that or not, the point was to just have it there, make it part of your thinking, to be so infused with God's word that it influences you and, and, and shapes you, how you live, how you think, how you decide, all of these kinds of things. Well, Jesus says they make their phylacteries broad, their fringes long. They love the place of honor at feasts, best seats in the synagogue. They love greetings in the marketplace, being called rabbi by others. In other words, they like the position. And Jesus says they do what they do to win the approval of men. Now, again, Jesus has already addressed that. We are to give. We are to pray. 
Uh, we are to fast in secret. Now, Jesus' point is not that someone else might not know. The point is we're not doing it to, to have others think, well, isn't he a religious man? You know, isn't she such a godly woman? You want the approval of men, you have the approval of men, but God is not charmed. But rather we live for the approval of God. That's why we pray in secret. We're praying to God, not for the approval of others. And Jesus takes exception to the way that they would parade themselves simply to win the approval of others, which they had, but God was not impressed. Now, notice what he says in verses 8 through 12. You're not to be called rabbi. Call no man your father, neither be called instructors. Uh, Jesus obviously is not saying here that we can't have teachers or preachers or other leaders in the church. Uh, After all, other scriptures uh, provide for that, command that, uh, and, and guide us in that. But what Jesus is saying is that ultimately it is Christ who is our teacher. Ultimately it is God who is our father. Ultimately it is to him we are accountable, which is a real check on human ambition in the church. That we who serve as elders or those who serve as deacons or those who serve as teachers do so subordinate to Christ, teaching his word, teaching with his authority. And we dare not usurp authority or position to ourselves for our own building up. Jesus says in verse 11 and 12, teaching that obviously was much on his heart, and we've heard from him in other places, the greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled. Whoever humbles himself will be exalted, which of course was the pattern of Christ's own life and ministry. It was one of service. It was one of humbling himself. And of course, he is the greatest of all. And so the problem with the Pharisees and the scribes was that they tended to live for, man, for man's approval, for human applause, not for God. But what is it that motivates you? Why are you here this morning? Is it because you love Christ? Is it because you want to honor God and serve him, please him because you love him? Or is it merely for the approval of man? A third key that Jesus gives here, one is to, uh, to practice what we preach, to walk the talk. Another is to live for God's approval, not for man. There's a third key here, and that is to point people to Jesus. You know, it's been said we should be living signposts, that we, we, we direct the attention, we direct the gaze of others to Christ himself, which was precisely what the scribes and Pharisees did not do. Look at verses 13 and 15. 14 is not included in the ESV. There's good reason that uh, textual critics think that that verse was not actually original in Matthew's Gospel. It may have been copied because of, uh, it was familiar in another place. But 13 and 15 describe this. And, and here Jesus begins his first pronouncement of woe, which was uh, an acknowledgement of their sad state at, at, at best, at worst, and as I believe it is here, a formal declaration of the judgment of God. It could be akin to saying, oh, alas, you know, oh no, ah me. But it's more than that here. Jesus is actually declaring God's judgment on them for these things. And this is the first time he calls them hypocrites. Now you know that in the world's mind, one of the most condemning things that can save a Christian is your hypocrite. And we need to be careful here because sometimes they misuse that word. Being a hypocrite, as I've said before, doesn't mean you fail to att- fail attaining to your own standard, your own professed standard. We all do. Whether our standard is God's or even for a non-Christian, his own standard. No one lives up to his own ideals for himself or for herself. We don't. 
And to profess a very high standard and yet fail to attain it isn't necessarily hypocrisy. Hypocrisy involves an element of conscious deceit, of play-acting, of pretending to be one thing, when in your heart you really mean something quite different, uh, knowing that you're quite different from the appearances that you put on. And that's exactly what Jesus labels these scribes and Pharisees with, that there was an element of deceit that they knew themselves, they knew who they were, and yet they pretended otherwise. And so he labels them with this term, hypocrite. Why? Well, here he says, You shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces, for you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. What does he mean? Well, it's a direct reference to the rejection of Christ, and not only to their rejection of Christ, but their efforts to turn the people against Christ. I mean, here, here was the embodiment of the kingdom. Here was salvation itself. As Jesus says here, the kingdom of heaven. And they shut it for themselves, and they make every effort to shut it for others. And what's worse, he says, they, in their zeal, they travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte, a single convert. And when he becomes one, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. In other words, they're, they're, as is often the case, the disciples of the Pharisees, out Pharisee the Pharisees. That's often the case of movements or patterns you see, even in the church, that you find that the disciples, the second generation, either tend to become lukewarm and fall away, or they become overly zealous. They take the principles of their master and teacher and press them to an extreme. And that's what Jesus says here. You make him twice as much a son of uh, hell as yourselves. They're all the more opposed to Jesus and to who he is. In fact, I think you could say, at least until his conversion, that uh, Saul of Tarsus was precisely a case in point. Saul himself, Paul argues that his zeal outstripped many of his contemporaries. And, and Paul would have been a, a more of a, a, a next generation after these Pharisees to whom Jesus was speaking. And at least prior to his conversion, he was twice as much a son of hell in his, in his rabid, fierce opposition, murderous opposition to the church. Until, of course, Christ came to him on the Damascus road. But the point is this, just as the Pharisees turned people away from Jesus, discouraged their coming to Jesus, we're called to draw people and point people to Jesus, not to ourselves, not even necessarily to our own positions, whatever they might be, but to Christ, to point people to the Savior, to Jesus, whom they might know and might be saved. Here's a simple one. Fourth that Jesus mentions, the fourth key, as we look at it, to avoiding this kind of hypocrisy, coming under this condemnation of Jesus. Keep your word. Do what you say you're going to do. Look at verses 16 through 22. Here, Jesus takes exception to the word games, the mind games that they play. Verse 16, if anyone swears by the temple, it's nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he's bound by his oath. You blind fools, Jesus says. Then he comes back to the point as he goes through that list in verses 20, 21, 22, that ultimately, regardless of how you care to parse these things, you're making your vow on God himself. 
And as Jesus said in another place, you know, that we, his, his children, his, uh, those whom he has saved, ought not to require vows to, to tell the truth at all. We simply let our yes be yes and our no is no. But he, he picks apart and finds fault with these word games that they play. It's like children, you know, have their hand behind their back and say yes, but got those fingers crossed. So they don't necessarily have to tell you the truth because they had their fingers crossed when they lied to your face. Well, that's what the Pharisees would do. And Jesus says, look, this is ridiculous. You know, well, I, I swore by the temple. Then if I'd sworn by the gold of the temple, then I would have to keep my word. But as I only swore by the temple, yeah, I just don't have to do what I said I was going to do. Nonsense. Well, that's the kind of games that they played. But for us, uh, it ought not to be so. We ought to be people of our word. I'm always struck by Psalm 15, which says that a righteous man keeps his word even to his own hurt. It might be inconvenient, but if you have pledged yourself, then there is an obligation there that we are are committed to follow through with what we said. Maybe you made an appointment to do something and something else came along that you'd really rather do. Well, it might be possible to get out of the first arrangement if someone's willing to let you do that, but if it costs them or it causes uh, uh, difficulty, then yes, your first obligation is to do what you say that you will do. Well, Jesus, of course, has taken exception to this in other places. Um, in Mark chapter 7, you know, he has the whole uh, situation where the Pharisees would say, well, if a man tells his father or mother, whatever you would have gained from me is korban, that is, if it's given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother and make void the word of God by their own traditions. Well, I'm sorry I could help you, my father or mother, but you know, I've already pledged that to God, so I can't help you. So violating the fifth commandment. That's the kind of thing that Jesus is saying here. And the positive is simply to let your yes be yes, to simply abide by what you say. In other words, keep your word. Don't go in for these silly uh, little distinctions. Fifth thing that Jesus says here, we need to major on the majors. Look at verses 23 and 24. The Pharisees suffered badly from the miss the forest for, for the trees syndrome. You know, very detailed, very nitpicking, and yet failing, therefore, to see the big picture. Look at what he says. You tithe mint and dill and cumin, or cumin, First pronunciation in the dictionaries, coming, and have neglected the weightier matters of the law. What were they doing? Well, they were taking their little seeds, even the produce of their little herb gardens, and they would meticulously count out a tenth of the seeds, and they would give the seeds. You know, the, the equivalent today would be somebody who's very careful not only to tithe on his income, but on, an, on any interest income that should happen to accrue to a, uh, an interest-bearing checking account. You know, these days, what is it, maybe, you know, three cents or whatever it might be. Well, let's see. Um, let's make it ten cents because that works easily mathematically. But, you know, very careful to add an extra penny to the tithe check, something, 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 point zero one, because we've got to tithe a tenth of that ten cents of interest income. It's that kind of thing, being very screwed, and yet missing the bigger picture, failing to love God, failing to love neighbor, or as Jesus says here, those matters of justice and mercy and faithfulness. Now notice what Jesus says, these you ought to have done 
without neglecting the former. Jesus isn't saying don't sweat the details. He's saying, well, you're, you're right. You know, that's your, your, your care there is, is right. But you can do that without missing the big picture. Such matters as justice, such matters as mercy, of caring about people, of seeing the bigger picture of what God is doing in the world. For example, Luke chapter 6, Jesus heals a man who has a withered, sick hand. He did it on the Sabbath. Now, Jesus, of course, would never violate the Sabbath. He would always do what was right, what was appropriate. He would avoid what was not appropriate. He was Lord of the Sabbath. He's the one who rested on the Sabbath day after creating the heavens and the earth. And he thought it appropriate to heal a man's hand on the Sabbath day, and he did that. And in fact, it's a very appropriate thing to do because it's a picture of the Sabbath, of healing, of restoration. And yet... It was these same scribes and Pharisees who were very upset with Jesus did. In fact, Luke 6.11 tells us their reaction. They were filled with fury and disgust with one another what they might do to Jesus. For healing a man's hand on the Sabbath? Yes, because in their mind that violated how it should be kept. Their laws, their rules that they had come up with, not God, but they had come up with, and Jesus broke their little rules And they were murderously furious with him. They couldn't see that bigger picture. One, that Jesus had shown mercy to this man in healing his hand, which was a very appropriate thing to do on the Sabbath. Two, that that healing itself was symbolic of what the Sabbath was all about. You see, all they could see was Jesus broke their little rule. Jesus, as they saw it, worked on the Sabbath. And they couldn't see anything beyond that. That's the kind of thing Jesus was talking about here. Well, what's the positive teaching here? Well, major on the majors. Yes, take care of small details. But see the bigger picture of who God is, of what he's doing in the world, of his love for people, of his grace and compassion toward people. See the bigger picture. Major on the majors. Sixth key to avoiding this kind of hypocrisy Jesus is talking about here and condemning here, cultivate your heart. Look at verses 25 through 28. Uh, Again, a couple sets of woes that Jesus gives here. And here he uses a couple of illustrations to describe the Pharisees. He says they're like cups and plates. He says you clean the outside of the cup and plate, but inside you're full of greed and self-indulgence. Clean the inside of the cup and plate. The outside also may be clean. And then he uses the image of a tomb. You're like a whitewashed tomb. Outwardly they're beautiful. There may be some connection here with whitewashing the tombs so that uh, pilgrims to Jerusalem could avoid them. They could avoid becoming unclean because of contact with a tomb, a dead body represented by the tomb, uh, as a warning. But, you know, we see today monuments, tombs, memorials that can be rather pretty, attractive, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you're full of hypocrisy. And surprisingly, lawlessness. You ever gotten a cup, been in a restaurant, you get a plate, a cup or something, and it's got something in the the inside, you know, it's disgusting, it's gross. Well, Jesus says that's what they're like. You know, they may be clean on the outside, but on the inside, it's still dirty, it's nasty. He says they're like tombs. They may appear outwardly attractive, but inside, they're full of all kinds of rot. Interesting word, lawlessness, hypocrisy 
and or precisely because of lawlessness. They look like the eminent law keepers on the outside, but Jesus is on the inside. They are as lawless, disobedient as can be. These are two powerful pictures because Jesus is saying, cultivate your hearts, clean the inside, deal with what's going on within. You know, so often, even for us in the church, we're more concerned with keeping up appearances than we are the reality of our heart before God. Even for one another, we're afraid to let people see the real condition of our heart, the struggles with sin, the temptation, the discouragement that we sometimes encounter. Because we feel some obligation to put up a front that we're obedient, that we've got it all together, and everything's okay. Or we put on a front to impress other people. We want them to think, you know, that we're, we're godly, we're, we're right, we, we're doing well. Well, the Pharisees took that to an extreme. Jesus said on the inside they were absolutely lawless. Well, the problem is not that we want to take care of the heart while appearing to be lawless, but it's this. If you deal with the heart and you desire to love God and obey God inside in your heart, then the outward appearances will certainly take care of themselves. But the point is, you want the outward appearance of obedience to come from an obedient heart. Remember God's words to Samuel. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. That's why things that you might do that impress others may utterly offend God. Remember Ananias and Sapphira in in the book of Acts? Remember Barnabas. Barnabas had sold some property that he had, and he took the money and he brought it and gave it to the church. Well, Ananias and Sapphira saw that. Well, you know, we saw how everybody appreciated Barnabas, thought highly of Barnabas for what he did. Well, we'll get some of that for ourselves. And so they sell some property, and they bring the proceeds to the church, lay it at the apostles' feet. But what happens? God strikes down Ananias when Peter asked, was this the amount? And he said, yes, this is what we got. And Ananias is struck down. And later his wife comes in and is complicit with him, agrees with with her husband, now deceased. And she too is struck down. Apparently the sin there being the fact that they lied to the church. They represented what they gave as being the entirety of what they made off the sale of property. Now, they had no obligation to give that. They could give as much of that or as little of that as they wanted to. Nothing wrong with selling the property and keeping half of it and giving half of it to the church. What was wrong was they lied and made it look like they had given the whole amount when, in fact, they had not. They were deceiving the church. And so, yeah, people who didn't know otherwise would say, well, you know, isn't that great? What a sacrifice. What, what generosity. But the Lord knew their heart. And he struck them dead on the spot for lying to to God and to the church. So we need to be careful here to cultivate our hearts. Our desire isn't to keep up good appearances. Our desire is that our heart would grow in grace before God. And then the seventh key here that we see. Honor believers of the past by living out the gospel in the present. Honor believers of the past by living out the gospel of the present. This is the longest section, in some ways the most involved, but it's something that obviously offended Jesus and something we see even to this present day. He says in verse uh, 29, 
You build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous. And you say, if we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. Jesus says, okay, so you do own up to the fact you are the descendants. You are the sons of those who murdered the prophets. Well, then go ahead and fill up the measure of your fathers. Go at the measure there being that amount that God will tolerate before his judgment falls. Go ahead and fill up what your fathers have done since you say that, yes, you are, in fact, their sons, their descendants. Look at verse 33. You serpents, you brood of vipers, how are you to escape being sentenced to hell? How? Well, only by the grace of God we know. But look at what Jesus says in verse 34. Therefore I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill, and crucify. How are, they, how are they to escape? Well, the Lord will send the messengers. But what do they do to the messengers? They flog them. They kill them. They persecute them. So that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth, from the blood of innocent Abel to the blood of Zechariah, son of Berechiah, A to Z. That doesn't happen in Greek. It happens in English, though, which is pretty neat. First to the last letters of the alphabet. Fill up the measure of your fathers. How will you escape? Well, I'll send you messengers but you're going to persecute them. You're going to kill them, chase them from town to town. Sounds a lot like Saul of Tarsus, doesn't it? But he was one who, by God's grace, did escape being sentenced to hell. Jesus says, truly, I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. John Calvin put it this way. He said, it's customary indeed with hypocrites, thus to honor after their death, good teachers and holy ministers of God who they cannot endure while they are alive. In other words, it's far easier to admire the reputation of a minister, missionary, servant of God from a distance of centuries than to have his spiritual descendants in your midst. Uh, It's much easier to admire the courage of John Knox confronting the queen than it is to have a modern-day John Knox come and confront you about your sin. Honoring those who lived long ago, who are safely distant in the past while persecuting their modern-day representatives. Um, poignant example of this, back when I was in seminary, Barbara and I made a day trip up to Princeton, New Jersey, to see Princeton University, which was started by Presbyterians, and also Princeton Seminary. And it's interesting, at Princeton Seminary, uh, you go in Nassau Hall, you see all these oil paintings of some of the giants of their early days, men like uh, Archibald Alexander, Charles Hodge, uh, Benjamin Breckenridge Warfield, prominently portrayed and displayed. And yet, the modern-day seminary that displays those men is 180 degrees opposite to what those men espouse. The inerrancy of the word of God, the bodily resurrection of Christ, the reality of heaven and hell, and the reality of a bodily glorious return of our Lord Jesus Christ. They honor the men by their portraits, but they teach the very opposite of what those men stood for. It should not be so with us as it is with them, or as it was with the scribes and Pharisees, who exalted the memory of the prophets and yet were plotting the murder of the prophet, the great prophet, the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Well, in their hypocrisy, the scribes and Pharisees were in danger, and they endangered others. But Jesus had very stern words for them. But notice how this passage ends. A lament. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that killed the prophets, stoned those who were sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you would not. In other words, they were unwilling, unwilling to come to Jesus, unwilling to be gathered by him. Notice what he says, see your house is left to you desolate. What does he mean? Well, it's probably an echo of Jeremiah, our friend Jeremiah from Sunday nights. Jeremiah 12, verse 7 says, I have forsaken my house, I have abandoned my heritage, I have given the beloved of my soul into the hands of her enemies. Jeremiah 22, 5. But if you will not obey these words, I swear by myself, declares the Lord, not by the temple or the gold on the temple, but by himself, I swear by myself, declares the Lord, that this house shall become a desolation. And Jesus says, your house is left to you, desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, in other Gospels, that probably refers Luke's account to the, to the uh, entry into Jerusalem because it came before that. But as Matthew has it here, it's clearly referring to Jesus' glorious entry, his, his return, his, his parousia, his second coming. And as if to, to make the point... Matthew tells us in chapter 24, 1, Jesus left the temple, which itself was a symbolic demonstration of the presence of God leaving the house of Israel desolate. But you see, that's what happens to hypocrites. Jesus leaves only to return in judgment, as chapter 24 makes plain. But you see here, he, he's not delighted in the condition of Israel. He laments it. He grieves it. He mourns over it because his desire is for your salvation. And so let Jesus gather you to himself as you repent of your sins, as you believe in him, as you come under the shelter of his wing for your eternal salvation. And then as many days as he gives you here on this earth to live for him, not just in appearance, but in reality. Let's pray. Father, we confess that there is something of a hypocrite in all of us. And we ask your forgiveness. We ask for your cleansing. Father, we thank you that in your grace, we don't have to pretend. We don't have to play to be other than we are. We can be ourselves. But we pray, O oh God, that ourselves, that what we are deep within, would be human beings who have been made alive by your Spirit, who have been cleansed by the blood of Christ, and are being renewed daily in obedience by your Holy Spirit. Lord, we will sin against you. We know that. But we pray that we might hate our sin more and more, that we might sin less and less. We thank you that our standing with you is based on the blood and righteousness of Jesus. But Father, we pray for your grace to be at work in us, from the inside out. We pray it in Jesus' name for his glory. Amen.